0: The world can be a mysterious place. It can also be a boring place, so let's focus on the mysterious. Rusty Hinges is a podcast that explores mysteries, hoaxes, natural phenomena, and weird history. Basically, anything that's a bit, well, hinky. Season 1 topics include the tale of Clarence Roberts, a man who died more than once. And then there is the maybe kidnapping of June Robles, The sun that danced in the sky over Portugal and an unsolved murder on the high seas. Rusty Hinges is generally skeptical, but never dismissive. Well, (laughs) usually not dismissive. You can find Rusty Hinges on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. That's Rusty Hinges. R-U-S-T. You know what? I have faith in your spelling abilities, so go and subscribe to Rusty Hinges and maybe you'll solve a mystery. Probably not, but you know. You never know.
1: You're listening to Mugshot. I'm your host, Lindsay. Fair warning. Today's episode may be a bit gruesome for some. If you're squeamish, this episode does involve surgical talk and may not be suitable for everyone. Today's mugshot, Ronaldo Silvestri, height, six feet tall, hair, black and gray, arrested for impersonating a doctor. Miami, Florida, the bustling beach town with glass skyscrapers by day and neon lighting by night. Hotels, marinas, yacht clubs, and golf courses line the streets which, coupled with the warm temperatures and blue water, attract tourists from all over. A booming business district and cultural diversity entice many to settle their roots in this Florida city. Miami is also a plastic city. These cities are those where plastic surgery is more common than in other areas of the country. While rankings do vary, Miami has been consistently in the top five cities for the highest number of surgeries performed for the past ten years as well as highest number of plastic surgeons per resident. Opinions for the reasons vary, from it being a retirement area where retirees may have more time and money for procedures, to the tanned, bikini-clad lifestyles encouraging many to keep up with their appearances. For one of these reasons or another, Jeanette Bernal was exploring her options for cosmetic surgery. Jeanette was a Cuban native, as many in Miami are. The population is over 70% Hispanic and Latino, in large part to approximately 500,000 Cubans settling there in the 15 years after the Cuban Revolution. This is why, when Jeanette Bernal found out about Dr. Rinaldo Silvestri, she was anxious to talk to him. Bernal's cousin was a psychologist who had heard his name thrown around at the hospital she studied in back in Havana, and now he was in Miami just like they were. Dr. Silvestri lived up to everything Bernal had hoped and expected. The six-foot-tall, salt-and-pepper-haired doctor was intelligent and well-spoken, confident and knowledgeable. Aside from Spanish and English, he also spoke French and a little bit of Italian. Diplomas lined his office walls, and she felt comfort that he had studied at the University of Havana, a school she knew and trusted. Pictures of he and his wife were perfectly situated in ornate frames on his desk. The office, called Ocean Health Center, had been a bit hard to find since Jeanette expected it to be in a medical office or a hospital, and it was actually near a shopping center. However, there wasn't a long wait in the waiting room like most doctor's offices, so it was worth the extra search. After a personalized consultation... Dr. Silvestri and Jeanette decided on a breast augmentation to be performed on June twentieth, 1998. He only charged her $4,500 and accepted half of it in cash. On the evening of the procedure, Bernal's cousin tagged along to make sure she had a ride home. Although it was a very routine procedure, it was approximately 8 p.m. and it wasn't safe for someone to drive home after anesthesia and pain medicine, especially in the dark. As the procedure began, the cousin flipped through magazines and waited patiently. The waiting room was quiet, as she was the only one there, so when Jeanette started to moan, it was a bit troublesome. Then the moaning turned to crying. Knowing the patient's cousin would likely be concerned, Dr. Silvestri's nurse came out into the waiting room to assure her that everything was fine. It was just a reaction to the medicine, and it happens in some patients. She can't feel anything, it's just something some people do. As she slumped back into her seat, the nurse returned to the operating room. Four hours passed. It was just past midnight when Dr. Silvestri appeared and declared that the surgery was over. They had been told it should only take about two hours, so Jeanette's cousin was tired and anxious. But nonetheless, she was relieved when she was told that everything went perfectly. Jeanette could go home in just a few minutes. Back at home, Jeanette was groggy and tired, which was to be expected. She settled in for the night, assuming she would feel more like herself in the morning. When morning came, the effects of the anesthesia had not worn off yet. In fact, it would be several more days before she felt normal again. When she was finally more coherent, Bernal remembered feeling very strange during the surgery. It was almost as if she was being thrown into some sort of long, dark tube. She even recalled mumbling to the doctors something about being on a boat. When Jeanette recounted this experience to her cousin, her cousin explained how the nurse said she simply had a weird reaction, but nothing abnormal. Comforted by this, the patient forgot about it and continued on with the healing process. Only, for Jeanette Bernal, the healing process never came. Within three days, the sutures on her breasts were opening. Her stitches looked very messy. They were uneven and swollen and weren't holding the incisions together very well. On July 5th, she visited Dr. Silvestri's office as planned in order to have the stitches removed and asked him about the condition of the incisions. The doctor admitted that the wound was a bit swollen, but it was no big deal and only removed a few of the stitches. The rest were left to aid in holding the cut together as it healed. Before she left, Bernal had one more question for her surgeon. Why were her breasts uneven? The left one seemed much bigger. Again, Rinaldo Silvestri claimed it was no big deal. It was just due to the swelling. Completely normal. It would even out in the next few days or maybe weeks. Not knowing any differently, Jeanette returned home and followed her surgeons advice. More than a week passed. The incisions continued to get worse. Bernal's flesh began to die, creating a strong odor and a seeping liquid. Knowing this wasn't just a simple expected effect of healing, the concerned patient returned to the office to be examined. In fact, she'd have to return multiple times for multiple corrective procedures. On November 15, 1998, Jeanette had her final experience with Dr. Rinaldo Silvestri. The physician couldn't decide whether to put her under general anesthesia or just local anesthesia to perform the last correction, and he ended up opting for local. Right there, in his office, he opened her sutures and reached right inside, using his fingers to try and resituate the implants. Jeanette Bernal looked down in horror at his hands in her chest, overwhelmed with pain and feelings of violation. She recalled later that she cried like she had never cried in her entire life. Finally, the sutures were closed with staples. This was the last time she ever set foot in his office or spoke to Dr. Silvestri. As stated, Bernal's breasts never did heal. Actually, they became, in her own words, grossly deformed. They were, in fact, different sizes and were nothing more than masses of scar tissue after being worked on so many times. Whatever the surgeon had done, he had messed up, and she prepared to take legal action. In December of 1998, 26-year-old Milady Pimienta opted to have breast implants. She was an aspiring model and wanted to help jumpstart her career. Pimienta had tried to have the procedure done in March, but after finding out that the Cuban doctor she wanted to use, Dr. Ronaldo Silvestri, charged too much, she decided to wait. $8,600 was a lot for her, but in a stroke of luck, Silvestri's office called her on December 1st to tell her about a special they were running. For Christmas, the surgeon was offering the procedure for only $3,000. She couldn't say no. During her consultation, Milady was impressed with the doctor. He was kind and smart. When she mentioned in casual conversation that her boyfriend was looking for a job, Ronaldo disclosed that he had been considering hiring a driver to help him out and maybe help with a few things around the office as well. He'd be happy to give her boyfriend a shot. Anything to help. Days after the procedure, Milady's sutures began to open. At first, a pink liquid oozed out, which soon turned yellow, a sign of potential infection. Since she was experiencing a great deal of pain as well, she paid a visit to Dr. Silvestri. No big deal, he told her. It happens sometimes. They only needed to drain the liquid, and it would all be fine. He proceeded to cut the finger off of one of his latex gloves, wiggled it into the incision, and explained that it would drain the fluid. She would need to keep the drain for two weeks, but would have to return to the office every day to change the drain, including Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. After the two-week period and receiving a clean bill of health from her surgeon, Pimienta wasn't convinced. Her breasts were severely uneven, and she was still in a lot of pain. In fact, one of her breasts just looked like a huge lump of clay. Every time she moved, she swore she could feel the implants rotating and shifting in her body. Concerned, she returned to Dr. Silvestri, who offered a reason for her incisions not healing properly. Either Milady was anemic, diabetic, or had AIDS. He had performed the surgery perfectly. If something was wrong, it wasn't anything he did, it was something wrong with her. Silvestri left the office to go grab some supplies, and he would try to do what he could. While he was out of the room, the distressed patient noticed a stack of papers sitting right in front of her on his desk. They looked to be legal papers. She decided to casually lean over a bit further to get a peek, and her stomach sank. She was right. They were legal papers. Dr. Silvestri was being sued by a woman named Jeanette Bernal, who alleged medical malpractice. Milady Pimienta immediately got up and stormed out of the office, both terrified and angry. If she wasn't the only one, what was really going on here? Now certain that she was also a victim of malpractice, Milady prepared to take her own legal action. In the spring of 1999, Alexander Baez was working at Pancho Villa, a local restaurant and club where he was an entertainer. Back home in Mexico, he had been a bit of a local celebrity, but he was starting a new life in Miami. His three-decade-long career as a bodybuilder and entertainer had earned him a spot as Mr. Mexico, as well as the runner-up in 1975's Mr. World competition. When a tumor developed in his chest in 1997, he came to the United States for medical care. The tumor removal had left a large depression in his chest, and Baez was afraid that his bodybuilding career was over for good. That is, until one of the club's regular customers offered to help. Dr. Ronaldo Silvestri and his wife frequented the club, and Alexander got to know them pretty well. They were a very nice couple. One evening after the show, the doctor approached Baez and offered to perform corrective surgery. With pectoral implants, the indentation in his chest wouldn't be visible at all. The entertainer was thrilled, not to mention flattered. Silvestri had said he was such a fan of Baez and thought so highly of him, he would do it for no more than the cost of the supplies needed. He would only have to miss a week of work and would be back to lifting weights within a month. Hoping it would help jumpstart his career in the United States, Alexander jumped at the chance. He even agreed to let Silvestri videotape the procedure— as he wished to use it as a training tool in the classes he taught. 47-year-old Alexander Baez reported to the Ocean Health Center for his pectoral implant procedure on April 13, 1999. During the four-hour procedure, which was supposed to take no more than two, the ex-bodybuilder woke up on three different occasions. He groggily stated, Donde estoy, or where am I, over and over. The patient was assured he was in good hands, and the procedure proceeded to completion. When the procedure was over, Agragi Baez remembered the surgery being very strange. He felt as if he was falling through a tunnel, bright-colored lights flashing everywhere, and even remembered seeing his grandfather, who had long since been deceased. Whatever anesthesia had been used, it sure did make him feel weird. Regardless, he shrugged it off, and looked in the mirror at his newly developed chest. Was the medicine still making him see things, or was his chest really big? Something didn't look right. Dr. Silvestri assured his patient that swelling was completely normal, and he would see his new pecs take perfect shape over the next few days. To Alexander's surprise, his pecs did not take perfect shape. They started leaking fluid almost immediately. After several weeks of being patient and doing as the doctor said, it finally hit him. Staring in the mirror while standing sideways, unable to see his stomach because of his chest, Baez realized that these weren't pectoral implants at all. They were female breast implants, and big ones at that. There was no way pec implants would stick out this far or be this round. Not to mention, pecs were usually a hard muscle his new chest was soft. Baez was furious. He had spent years perfecting his body, and now he had female breasts. He stormed to Silvestri's office to confront him, but to his surprise, the surgeon was nowhere to be found. It looked as if he had just packed up and left without a trace. A lawyer was contacted immediately and that's when Alexander discovered that he was not the only patient to experience problems with Ronaldo Silvestri. Who was Dr. Silvestri? Why was he so careless, despite the credentials covering his office walls? Before we find out, let's take a quick break. Welcome back from the break.
0: In that case, I pronounce you lucky.
1: Play for free at Luckylandslots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary, boyd were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. When we left off, Alexander Baez had just discovered that Dr. Silvestri was nowhere to be found and contacted a lawyer. Spencer Ehrenfeld decided to represent the three victims: Jeanette, Milady, and Alexander. Assuming this would be a typical malpractice suit, which he was quite accustomed to, Ehrenfeld reached out to Silvestri's attorneys. When he asked for the surgeon's insurance information, he was told there wasn't any. It was uncommon for a physician not to have malpractice insurance, but not impossible. Therefore, he asked for Rinaldo's medical license number and details. Again, there was nothing. As it turns out, 58-year-old Ronaldo Silvestri wasn't licensed anywhere in the United States. As far as Ehrenfeld could tell, he wasn't a physician at all. The Department of Health's unlicensed activities office was contacted, and an investigation began. Enrique Tonaz, the lead investigator on the case, discovered a wealth of information concerning the alleged surgeon. For starters, Ronaldo Silvestri had served as an army doctor in Cuba during the Angolan Civil War in the late 80s and 90s, but aside from that, there was no evidence of him ever receiving any medical training. The patients informed authorities of how diplomas in the office stated that he attended the University of Havana, but no transcripts could be recovered to prove this. After leaving the army almost penniless, Silvestri had arrived in the United States and evidence was found that he began treating patients then in the convenience of his own home. His practice, Ocean Health Center, was opened in 1997. To bring in business, he initially relied on flyers and word-of-mouth. Several of his flyers used the names of other well-respected doctors in the area in an effort to prove that he was legitimate. Some were even listed as his associates, although when asked about it, these doctors knew nothing of the sort. They didn't know Silvestri at all. Then there was the video footage. Alexander Baez informed investigators that he had agreed to have the surgery taped. Unsure if they'd be able to locate said tape since the impostor seemed to have fled, authorities caught a lucky break when Milady Pimienta dropped the bombshell. She had the tape. Her boyfriend, the one who Ronaldo agreed to hire and help out, was the one who had been asked to film the surgery. Knowing his girlfriend was pursuing a lawsuit, he agreed to do it, hoping it would prove useful in court. Being untrained, they didn't know what they were looking for or what was proper procedure. That would be up to the professionals to decipher. They were just hoping to catch something, anything, and they did. The video showed Baez sprawled out on what seemed to be a 2 by 4 as opposed to an actual surgical table. A nurse accompanied Silvestri as well as an anesthesiologist who would soon administer the drugs that made the patient hallucinate. Once Alexander was under, the nurse announced, we're going to put these implants in like a Mexican taco with chili, and the procedure began. Footage revealed that the anesthetic of choice was ketamine. Ketamine is complicated. If you hear about it in the media, it's a party drug. Known as Special K on the streets, its trance-like effects do make it a popular choice for recreational use. Commonly used in drinks, joints, and also snorted, the drug was added to the list of controlled substances in the U.S. in 1999. It's important to note that this was after all three of the surgeries discussed in this story. However, it does serve a medical purpose. What must be determined in this case is whether or not it was used properly. Ketamine, which is classified as a dissociative anesthetic, is mainly used for starting and maintaining anesthesia, and while it is used on humans, including in a pediatric setting, it's more commonly used in veterinary medicine. Having a similar chemical makeup as PCP, the effects do contribute to pain relief, sedation, and memory loss. These same effects also make it a popular date-rape drug. In high doses, patients report experiencing what is called the K-hole, which is a tunnel-like feeling as well as an out-of-body or near-death experience. Physicians combine ketamine with another drug to avoid the hallucinogenic effects. This drug doesn't need an electric supply or a highly trained staff to administer it, which makes it more common in less wealthy countries and disaster or war zones. Overall, it's safe in a controlled medical setting, but it does have abuse potential. So, did Silvestri use it properly or not? Based on the reactions his patients recalled, it's safe to assume that it wasn't used properly. The effects of ketamine are felt within minutes and typically last less than an hour. We know that at least two of the surgeries lasted four hours. Therefore, it would have required either more than one dose, or a high dose, or both. As previously stated, many of the more extreme effects of the drug are felt at higher doses, and under normal circumstances, would have been administered with a drug to offset those consequences. If this isn't done, the mind altering results can last for up to 24 hours. But in Jeanette's case, she and her cousin reported that she couldn't shake the results for three days. Even if the proper amount had been given and Jeanette only felt off for a few hours, the fact remains that no supplementary drugs were given to prevent hallucinations, which can be quite unpleasant and scarring for some. Also, ketamine carries a high risk of overdose. The dosage required to achieve a recreational high and that required for an overdose are slim differences. After the ketamine was administered in the video, the procedure began, which was even more telling. As classical music played in the background, Dr. Silvestri made a two-inch incision below the patient's nipple. This was concerning, as the incision is supposed to be made underneath the armpit. Not only that, it was way too deep. He had actually cut right through the pectoral muscle, which, for a bodybuilder, was sure to be detrimental. Then the incision was opened further when the doctor used his fingers to tear it open the rest of the way. He reached for a tool that would be used to insert the implant underneath the skin. Wait, was that a cake cutter? He was using an ordinary kitchen utensil as a surgical tool. A dirty and bent one at that. Then Silvestri brought out the silicone implants. Only, these weren't pectoral implants. Pec implants are made from a harder silicone. They're not injected with saline like female breast implants. These were definitely soft and filled with saline. Regardless, they were placed into the patient's chest. When it was time to close the incision, only the top layer of skin was sutured. The interior tissue was left wide open. Surgeons who assisted police in understanding the surgical practices insisted that this was incredibly basic knowledge that even the earliest medical students would have learned. At the end, the physician went over post-operative instructions, informing the patient that he would be back to lifting weights in four weeks. In reality, this takes six weeks, and that's without the pectoral muscle being severed. They had seen enough. It was quite clear what was going on here. There was only one problem. Where was Ronaldo Silvestri? Authorities shared the belief that he was likely in Cuba, South America, or the Caribbean. He couldn't have gone too far and would likely have gone somewhere he was familiar with. Plus, if he had gone back home to Cuba, there was no extradition agreement with the United States, so he'd be safe there. Regardless, in 1999, a warrant was issued for his arrest. Hoping for any information leading to his capture, Investigators broke the story to the media, and the faux surgeon was plastered all over national news. It wasn't long before a fourth victim came forward. She, too, had been a patient of Silvestri's. Expecting a routine eyelid nip and tuck, this patient was now unable to shut her eyes all the way. According to Enrique Tonez, the man was a butcher. The techniques he used were those of a medical examiner working on a corpse. Spencer Ehrenfeld filed a class-action civil suit for the victims and arranged for them to undergo reconstructive surgery. Dr. John Castle, who was known as the best of the best, donated his services to the cause. But there was one glaring problem with the lawsuit. How do you get money from someone who is, one, missing, and two, a con man with no actual value? No matter the outcome, when Silvestri was found, he was at least facing life imprisonment. Milady's boyfriend led authorities to the nurse and anesthesiologist in the video, who would determine to be Sophie Baza and Julio Montadeoca. Sophie met the wannabe surgeon in 1997 when she was 49 years old. She was a successful real estate agent at that time, and the two fell for one another. While they were engaged, they were not married, as they told so many patients and friends. Sophie became a sort of recruiter for the medical office and made it her job to bring in patients. In fact, she was the one who had called Pimienta to tell her about the Christmas sale. Both were arrested and charged in the crimes and faced a minimum of 15 years in prison. With two accomplices in custody, more was learned about how all of this went down. After Jeanette Bernal stormed out of the office and never spoke to Silvestri again, he got nervous. Every effort was made to try and legitimize his business before something bad happened. After applying for certification, Ronaldo went on to take the medical exam four times. And four times, he failed. It was also revealed that the ketamine had been taken from a veterinary office. Ordinary kitchen tools were used, as he couldn't get access to proper surgical tools and supplies without proper credentials. Investigators described it all as completely barbaric, With lab animals receiving better treatment, Sylvester's story was aired everywhere it could be. Rewards were offered for information leading to his capture. In 2004, a tip came in to authorities from an unknown source who mentioned that they thought he may be in Belize working at a hospital there. Sure enough, the team went to check things out, and the impersonator was there, working and teaching under a new name, not only performing medical tasks but instructing others on how to do so. He had forged diplomas and other credentials in Belize, just as he had in the United States, and was back in action. Evidence surfaced that he had attempted to perform surgery in Belize, but in order to do so, a physician had to complete a type of supervised training, much like a residency, even if you have practiced surgery elsewhere. Of course, this wouldn't work, so he was never able to officially be in an operating room at the hospital. What isn't known was whether or not he did it anyway on the side. He had to settle for general medicine in the hospital setting. Finally, Rinaldo Silvestri was extradited back to the United States to face his crimes. Once Rinaldo had been located, Jeanette Bernal prepared a hefty lawsuit where she was awarded $4.5 million. She argued that, aside from the obvious physical harm inflicted, It affected her whole life. She was too self-conscious to be intimate with her long-term boyfriend and father of their child, and he began seeing other women and left her. She also had such extreme pain from the botched surgery that she was unable to work. With her proceeds from the lawsuit, she intended to repay the surgeon who donated his services to correct her as best as he could. Ronaldo Silvestri was charged with practicing medicine without a license assisted aggravated battery, and administering narcotics without a license. He pleaded not guilty in court. He admitted that, sure, he didn't have an actual license, but that didn't mean he messed up the surgeries. It wasn't his fault his patients didn't follow his instructions. Alexander Baez testified, explaining how when he went back home to Mexico to visit family, his children were being harassed and bullied for their father having breasts. Jeanette Bernal explained how he used an unsterile finger cut from his own glove as a drain, not knowing that the actual process involved tubes and sometimes additional stitches. It went far beyond just the physical effects of the surgery. It had affected all of their livelihoods. Realizing the evidence was stacked against him and that life in prison was likely, Silvestri changed his plea to not guilty. He went from facing life to a sentence of 7.65 years behind bars, the very lowest recommendation for his charges. It's thought that Silvestri began in his home country of Cuba. When things went awry there, he fled to the United States. When things turned sour here, he found his next target area in Belize, and perhaps would have continued this pattern forever if he hadn't been stopped. Investigators are very confident that there are more victims who haven't even spoken up, possibly because of embarrassment. The fourth victim never spoke out until the story made it to the news, so it's thought that others may have their own reasons for not coming forward as well. Miami was the perfect location for this fraud, as plastic surgery was quite common here. He preyed on immigrants without insurance so that flags wouldn't be raised. He also preyed on them because he spoke their language and they felt comfortable around him. He earned their trust by pretending to be a friend, took their money, and left them butchered. Because of this, he is referred to as the Butcher of South Beach. Silvestri has since served his sentence, been released, and has not been heard from since. Is he still out there trying to practice medicine? Is he harming more people in the process? Well, no one knows. If you're like me, you have a million questions that there just aren't answers to. He had attorneys. Spencer Ehrenfeld reached out to him. Surely they knew he didn't have malpractice insurance or a medical license number, didn't they? And if someone fails a medical exam four times, is that a red flag at all or is that normal? Were there more victims? Unfortunately, these questions may never be answered. And he may still be out there somewhere. That concludes today's episode of Mugshot. I hope you're enjoying Season 2 so far. And if you are, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. This week, I'd like to thank Lucius Lee for the review that read, Love this podcast, very well narrated, and lots more information about the criminals and the crime than other podcasts. Can't stop listening. I only just started listening this morning, and I was quick to subscribe, and I cannot wait for new cases. Thank you for this. Also, I'm proud to announce that Marie has committed a felony. Well, rather, she has joined the felony tier on Patreon, and will be getting stickers, a button, early and ad-free episodes, as well as access to the Mugshot mini-episodes. Thanks so much, Marie. You can visit patreon.com slash mugshotpod to support the show and get the same rewards as Marie. Please spread the word, as your word of mouth is one of the best ways to support your favorite shows. Until next time, stay out of trouble, or you may end up pictured in your very own mugshot.